All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you here today. My name's Matt. As Brad mentioned, I'm lead pastor here at Anchor. It's great to see you. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. As Brad mentioned, we're continuing our series uh, in the, the series of the Holy Spirit, seven weeks on the Spirit, and um, today we are in for a treat. Over the first week, we looked at the person of the Holy Spirit, that He is both a person, not an it, and divine. Last week, we got this amazing, amazing overview of the presence of God throughout the Scriptures, and I know many of you were particularly ministered to in Alnado's message last week. It was, it was great. And today, as Brad mentioned, we're looking at the power of the Holy Spirit. And believe it or not, the question we're going to try and get through today is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So whew, it's going to be fun, right? Yes, good. All right. If you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 3 now. John chapter 3. We're going to start here, but we're not going to stay here. So uh, there's going to be plenty of flicking around, but you don't need to worry. The verses will be on the screen behind me. I'm going to pray as we come to the Word of God this morning. So would you join me as I pray? God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that this Word is the sword of your Spirit, that it is living and active that it judges our thoughts, our attitudes, our hearts. It corrects, it trains us. God, we pray that this morning we would come and sit humbly under your word, that you might speak to us by your spirit. We thank you that you're a God who is not silent, that you're a God who is actively involved in our lives. And we pray this morning as we tackle this difficult topic that you help us to do the hard work of figuring out what the scriptures say you might lead us into truth, Holy Spirit, because that is what you do. God, we pray that as a result of this, you might help us to live lives in the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. All right, let's go. John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. We have this encounter with Jesus and a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Jesus says a very controversial thing to him there in verse 3. He says to him, unless you are born again or unless you're born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to be there, then you must be born again. You must be born from above is another way of saying that. 
There is no heritage, there's no culture, there's no ethnicity that gives you an automatic pass to get into heaven. I remember um, just recently one of, one of my favorite bands that I used to listen to was called Under Oath, and they just finished their rebirth tour because right? the band broke up. And then they got back together and they went on tour again. It was their rebirth tour. And we use this language of being born again to speak of a comeback or a turning over a new leaf. But that's not what Jesus means when he says you must be born again. You must be born from above. The theological word for this is regeneration. Regeneration, that you have been made new, that you are an entirely new creation, not just simply turning over a new leaf, but made new altogether. Jesus says, unless you are born again, born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, as classy and as religious and as significant as Nicodemus was, because he's a Pharisee, because he's a ruler of the Jews, without being born again by the Spirit of God, he cannot enter the kingdom. Now, there's a pretty widely held view in the first century amongst the Jews that if you were Jewish by birth, then you kind of got an automatic pass into heaven. Unless you were like really, really sinful or grossly rejected God altogether, generally most Jews believed because I'm Jewish, I get to go to heaven. And so this is a controversial statement from Jesus when he says, no, it doesn't work like that. Unless you were born again, unless you were born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Nicodemus profoundly misunderstands what Jesus is trying to say. You notice there in verse 4, he says, well, hang on a second. How can someone be born when he is old? Like, do you mean, Jesus, that I need to climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Like, he, he takes Jesus very literally at his words here, almost bordering on ridiculous. And Jesus says to him, no, Nicodemus, it doesn't work like that. Verse 5, this is what he says. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So here Jesus says, firstly, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And then secondly, he says, you must be born of water and spirit. Right? So to be born again is to be born of water and spirit. That, that has to happen. Whatever that is, it has to happen in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, a number of people take water to mean different things here in this verse. Some take water here to mean the waters of the womb, the amniotic fluid of the womb. And so you need a natural birth and then you need a spiritual birth. Some people take water there to mean the waters of baptism, that you need to be baptized with water and you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in order to be a believer. And so if you're not baptized by full immersion generally in water and the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Some would take water there to mean John the Baptist's baptism. And so when John comes, he says, I baptize you with water. And then additionally, there is another baptism that Jesus brings with the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem with all of those interpretations is that baptism is not mentioned here. It would be weird if Jesus introduced an idea of baptism here. Jesus doesn't talk about baptism here. Indeed, he doesn't separate these two terms like water and spirit as separate events. He holds them together. 
Whatever water and spirit is, it is the same event as being born again, born from above. Additionally, Jesus assumes that Nicodemus understands what he's talking about. He says a bit later on in verse uh, 8 or 9, I think it is, he says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand this stuff? Shame on you. You should know this. And so that seems to suggest that there ought to be something that Nicodemus knows in the Old Testament maybe that points forward to what Jesus is saying here. And I think that body of knowledge is what is referred to as Ezekiel 36.25, where Jesus has in mind this prophecy of the prophet Ezekiel when God would pour out his spirit. This is what it says, Ezekiel 36.25. This is the prophet Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Water. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so water and spirit here in Ezekiel 36 are again parallels of the same event of the working of the spirit to make a person alive. This is the miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in moving a person from death to life. Moving a person from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I love that image there. A heart of stone is rock hard. It's incapable of life. It does not pump blood around the body. It's dead. And God says, I will take out that heart of stone and I will replace it by the power of the Spirit with a heart of flesh that has life, that is responsive, that pumps blood. It's a beautiful image of what the Spirit of God does. And so when Jesus says there, you must be born of water and of the Spirit, I think he has Ezekiel 36 in mind, that you must experience the Holy Spirit cleansing you and washing you and flooding you, you must experience the Holy Spirit making you alive when you were dead. And that's what he means when he's talking to to Nicodemus. And he assumes, because this stuff is in the Old Testament, that Nicodemus ought to understand what he's talking about. You know, the only reason that any of us, that any of you in this room, is remotely spiritually alive is because the Spirit of God has worked with power to make you alive when you were dead. This is the only reason that any of us are alive. It's a wonder of grace that what we were incapable of doing because our hearts were stone-cold dead, the Spirit of God by power made us alive. And so let me ask you a question this morning, church. Do you believe that miracles still happen today. Do you believe that? We must. We have to believe that. Because every single person that has faith in Jesus is a walking, talking miracle. That God has taken you dead and lifeless and breathed new life into you by His Spirit is a miracle. Do you love Jesus? That's a miracle. Do you worship God? That is the power of the Spirit at work in your life. Were it not For the initial work of the Spirit there, none of us could confess Jesus as Lord. 
We have to believe that miracles are still possible. This church is evidence that that is the case. You know, in Hebrews 10, 29, the writer of Hebrews refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace. And that's exactly what he does. Because this work of bringing new life is not something we earned or deserved or merited because of our goodness. This is a gift of grace that he has given us freely. I want to suggest to you this morning that the the most powerful and the most profound work of the Spirit of God is the work of regeneration, is the work of making a dead soul alive. And I think this truth about the work of the Spirit and his power ought to have two very important implications for us as, as people who love Jesus. The first is that this truth ought to make us both deeply humble and confident at the same time. This truth ought to make us both deeply humble and confident at the same time. Humble because this wasn't of you. You didn't do it. The Spirit of God made you alive. You cannot have spiritual arrogance and pride in something that you did not do. The Spirit of God did this for you. This truth ought to make us humble, but it it also ought to make us confident because this isn't of you. You didn't do this. The Spirit of God made you alive. And if it's His work and not yours, that means you don't rest in your ability to do this, but His ability to do this. That means that there is no lack of assurance and uncertainty about if God is for you or not, if God has truly made you alive or not, because this is a work of the Spirit. And he's reliable and good and trustworthy. And so this truth, that it is the power of the Spirit that makes us alive, ought to make us both humble and confident at the same time. Secondly, I think that this truth ought to make us a prayerful people. If we believe that the Holy Spirit truly takes someone who is far from God and brings them near, Take someone who is spiritually blind and opens their eyes. Take someone who has a heart of stone and gives them a heart. If we believe that that is the work of the power of the Spirit, then surely, surely as a church, as a people, we ought to be desperately crying out that the Spirit would work with power to move people from death to life. You know, just as a bit of a... A, a, a tangent here. There, there have been a number of questions that have come through your uh, gospel communities about who we pray to. If we worship a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who do we pray to? Do we address our prayers to the Father? Can we address them to the Son? Can we address them to the Holy Spirit? It's a brilliant question. And I believe a question that we have an answer to in the Scriptures. We have a pattern of prayer that we see. And the pattern is this, that all prayer generally is to the Father, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. I think we see that pattern. I think that ought to be the pattern of our prayers. Now, does that mean that you cannot address a prayer to Jesus? That you cannot address a prayer to the Holy Spirit? Almost all of the references to prayer are addressed to the Father. There are a few little references of prayers that are addressed to Jesus, like Stephen um, at his stoning, he, he prays to Jesus. There's a number of times where Jesus says, Ask of me. 
And as far as I'm aware, there's not a single reference in the Scriptures of a prayer being addressed to the Holy Spirit. So can we pray maybe to Jesus and not the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think so. I think it's okay to address a prayer to Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And the reason is, if we think back to week one, we believe that the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He's the third person of the Trinity, not just the third wheel of the Trinity. That he is divine, that he is God, that he is to be worshipped alongside the Father and the Son. Then surely that means that we can pray to him. If he can be grieved, then doesn't that mean we ought to apologize to him for the grief that we've caused him? And I think when we're praying, for example, if you're praying for a friend to know Jesus, it seems entirely appropriate to pray, Holy Spirit, please open their eyes, because that's his work. That's what he does. All that to say, anyway, that's a bit of a side note. Yes, we can pray to any person of the Trinity, but... All that to say, if the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, then surely we ought to be a church that is passionately and fervently crying out that God would pour out His Spirit on people and move them from death to life. As passionate as we are about hanging out and doing life together and being a community on mission, we ought to be just as passionate about prayerfully pleading with God to do what only He can do by the power of His Spirit. So this this supernatural moment of regeneration that the Spirit does by His power, of new birth, is what the New Testament calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what John the Baptist spoke of when he said, In the beginning of all of the Gospels, he said, I baptize you with water, but one coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what John is speaking of there is a contrast. He's saying this is a symbol and what Jesus does will be the reality. This is the outward and Jesus is going to come and do the inward. This moment of The Holy Spirit making us new is what the Scriptures call a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm looking around and there's a few cranky faces at me going, we're getting there, all right? Don't write me off just yet. Don't hate on me just yet because there's so much to say in this sermon. Some people teach that the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in particular, is an event that occurs after you have been filled with the Holy Spirit after you've become a Christian. So you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit as a seal and guarantee of your salvation, and then at some point afterwards you are baptized with the Holy Spirit in power, and most, although not all, say that that ought to necessarily be followed by speaking in tongues. Now as we read the New Testament, do we find evidence for this, this understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Some would say yes. There is evidence of this. The first evidence is the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was born, and we know from Luke 1.15 that as the angel comes to Joseph, he says, you're going to have a son, and from the womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Luke 1.15, Jesus, as an embryo, is full of the Holy Spirit. How we even understand that, I don't know. But then you get to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, 
Jesus, just before he's about to begin his public ministry of teaching and healing, he goes to John the Baptist and he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And at that moment, it says that Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And so the argument goes that what we have here is an example of someone who was a Christian. They, they had the Spirit of God. And then at a later point, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Is that a sufficient example and pattern for all believers? My problem with that is that Jesus never got saved, right? He never had a before and after story like the rest of us. Jesus never got saved. He was always, always filled with the Holy Spirit because of who he is, the Son of God. But even as you read through the Gospels of the account of the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan by John and then the Holy Spirit baptism, you actually don't find the baptism language there of the Spirit. Baptism language is simply just associated with his water baptism. And then all three synoptic gospels say that the Spirit descended on Jesus. No language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit there. And so do we find in the example of Jesus an example of a Christian who has the Spirit and then at some later point is baptized with the Spirit? I don't think so. I think what we see here is Jesus being filled with the Spirit and empowered for the mission that he's about to embark on, the mission of the kingdom of God, ultimately the mission of going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. It's very important that we understand that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit as he walked through those three years of his ministry. And if Jesus required the filling of the Spirit for that, then how much more we? So I don't think we find in Jesus the example that we're after. But we do find in the disciples, an example of Christian people, people who believed, who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at a point well after they believed in Jesus. We would all agree, I think, that by the time Jesus rose again from the dead, the disciples are believers, right? We, we would say, yes, they get it. They believe. I mean, Thomas is kind of the last one to get there, is he not? All of the other guys are on board with who Jesus is, and then finally Thomas gets there. Even in the Gospels, we have hints that Jesus gives that the disciples get it. He'll say things like, already you have been cleansed. Already your name is written in the book of life. Already you have moved from death to life. And so surely the disciples get it. They're believers. They've even experienced the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, at his ascension, Jesus says to the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem until the promise of my Father comes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 2, the disciples are together. They're praying. And at the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And it is said that there is what sounds like a rushing of wind and what looks like flames of fire fall upon the, the apostles and they speak in tongues. And so do we have an example here of people who believed in Jesus and then at a subsequent point were baptized with the Holy Spirit? Is that the, the example that we need as a pattern for us all? And unfortunately, I don't think so again. Because for the disciples, it couldn't have possibly happened any other way. It couldn't have possibly happened any other way for the disciples. Yes, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at some point after they'd believed in Jesus. 
but it couldn't have happened any earlier than that. See, what we have happening here in in Acts chapter 2 is a transition of eras, an overlap of eras. You have happening here the old covenant transitioning to the new covenant. These disciples could not experience new covenant worship of Jesus because he had not poured the Holy Spirit out in that way. That's why he says to them in John 13, unless I go, unless I ascend, the helper or the counselor will not come. So it is better for me to go. That was last week's message, right? And so there is something profound that happens at Pentecost as the eras shift, as we move from Old covenant to new covenant. You see Peter demonstrating that when the people come and they say, they hear them speaking in tongues. They say, are these guys drunk? Peter says, look, whoa, whoa, it's, it's early in the morning, guys. Like we're not, we're not on it that early. What you see here is not a bunch of guys who've had too much to drink. What you see here is a, is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel 2 that the Spirit of God would be poured out indiscriminately on all people. You see, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit was given to some and then could have been taken away. That's why David cries out, Take not your Spirit from me. But now in the New Covenant, the promise is that I will pour out my Spirit on all people and it will remain on them in power. And so what we have happening here in Acts chapter 2 is a unique moment in salvation history What we see is not a new covenant believer who is baptized with the Holy Spirit. We see an old covenant believer becoming a new covenant believer through the process of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so it couldn't have happened any other way for the disciples. And we don't have anyone else today who lives in the overlap of the ages anymore. We don't have anyone who believed in Jesus under the old covenant and then received the Spirit and moved into the new covenant. And so I don't think we have an example there of a Christian who believes in Jesus, who has received a baptism of the Holy Spirit at some point after their conversion. So if we don't have an example in Jesus, if we don't have an example in the disciples and the apostles, what about all of the other occurrences, particularly in the book of Acts, of people who were Christians, who believed and then received the Spirit at a later point? Now, I'm not sure there are lots of other ones. I think there's one good one. And the one good one is found in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. This is what it says. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that is the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so the argument goes that here we have a clear case of people who have believed. They've received the word of God, it says even. So much so, like Philip believes that these guys have believed, so much so that he baptizes them in water. Now some argue there that these people haven't genuinely believed. They'll make reference to the fact that It says there that they'd only been baptized in the name of Jesus, which is a weird way of saying you've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. What does that mean there? But I think what we have here is a a genuine conversion and then a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or is it a baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
you'll notice there in verse 16 of Acts 8 that Luke says that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. Now, I take that to mean that they had not received the Holy Spirit at all. And additionally, there's no reference again here to a baptism. It's simply in verse 17. They receive the Spirit. The question is, why would God withhold a baptism of the Holy Spirit? If that's our understanding of, of receiving the Spirit at conversion, why would God withhold that and delay that from the conversion experience? And I think the answer is to preserve the unity of the church. There is a significant and huge divide between the Jews and the Samaritans, and then even more so the Gentiles. It's hard to actually overstate the hatred between Jew and Samaritan. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they called them mongrels, half-castes, that they interbred with the Gentiles, and they pretty much blamed them for everything that went wrong. Every judgment of God was a Samaritan's fault. So strong was the hatred for the Samaritans that the Jews used to pray that God would not save them. That's full on. The Jews wished them to hell. If a Jew wanted to travel from Jerusalem to Judea, I think that's a south journey. The most direct route was to travel straight through Samaria. So strong was their hatred of the Samaritans that they preferred to go north and then travel all the way around so they didn't have to pass through Samaria, didn't have to engage with the Samaritan. The hatred here is strong and vile. And so the moment that the gospel comes to the Samaritans, there is very grave danger that division and disunity could be caused in the church. Will the Jewish Christians receive the Samaritans? Will they simply become an outcast, weird sect of Christianity like they had been of Judaism? And so I believe that the most likely reason that the Holy Spirit is withheld at this point is so that the apostles themselves could come and lay hands and see and experience that these people had received the Spirit of God. That John and Peter and the boys would come and witness so that they can testify themselves, we have seen with our own eyes the inclusion of the Samaritans into the kingdom of God. You remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the promise of Jesus is that the gospel will go from Jerusalem, one geographical point, to Judea. Now, all of that is within the family camp of the Israelites. And then it's going to cross a significant geographical and cultural boundary, Samaria. There's, there's great danger as the gospel goes. And then Jesus says it's going to cross another boundary, and that one is the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. That's the promise, Acts 1.18. The good news, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There is a significant tracking through the book of Acts of those milestones happening. And at each point that the gospel transcends this geographic and ethnical boundary, the apostles are there to witness, to see. You see the same thing happening in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius and the Gentiles first come to faith. Peter is there. He sees with his own eyes as he's preaching the gospel to them. The Spirit falls. They speak in tongues and he says, oh, just like it happened to us back in Acts chapter 2. Praise God. The Gentiles have come to faith as well. 
And so I think what's happening here is that as these moments, these significant moments of the transition of the gospel happen, that God wants his boys there for the sake of the unity of the church to see so that they can proclaim, yes, the gospel, the Holy Spirit is for these people as well. So, I don't think we can build a case that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that happens after a Christian comes to faith in Jesus. The consistent pattern of Scripture is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that occurs when someone is converted apart from a few or two main occasions. Last, if I haven't convinced you, let me take you to one final verse and hopefully that might convince you. This is Paul's theology on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is what it says. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Paul is saying that all of the believers here in Corinth, all of them, not some, not most, all of them have been baptized in the one spirit. All of them have received the one spirit to drink. And what he is speaking here of is the initial moment of spirit baptism that achieves what? It achieves inclusion into one body. And so as you are baptized by the one spirit, that is the mark that you have been included in Christ, that you've been baptized with Christ, that you are now a part of the kingdom, that you are a part of the body of Christ. Paul is saying that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. You must be born again. You have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have to be transformed by God if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to be part of the body of Christ. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I believe Scripture reveals to us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the initial power of the Spirit to move us from death to life. But you might say, well, hang on a second. What about all of the other occurrences of the Spirit coming upon God's people with power? Well, you might say, well, hang on a second. What about my personal experience? What about my experience of the Holy Spirit? I have experienced God coming upon me with dynamic and radical power. If that's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is it? And I think the category that the Scriptures give us for those events and moments is a filling of the Spirit or an anointing of the Spirit or an empowering of the Spirit. So let's go to Acts chapter 4 to see an example of this happening. Acts chapter 4, remember, Peter and John in chapter 3 have been walking into the temple. They see a man, they heal him. The Sanhedrin call Peter and John in. They question them. They threaten them. They say, stop speaking in the name of Jesus any longer. They release them and then they gather with the church and they begin to pray. And this is what they pray in Acts chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak of the word of God with boldness. So here clearly we have an example of believers who have received the Spirit of God. Peter, John, they're there and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, a subsequent filling that happens at some point after their conversion. We see this happening a number of other times in the book of Acts. And it often occurs, often occurs, although not exclusively, in a moment of need to declare the gospel fearlessly in the face of opposition. You often see the Spirit of God showing up and it says that they were filled with the Spirit and the Word of God was proclaimed with great power and boldness. So what I think we see in Scripture is one baptism of the Spirit and many multiple subsequent fillings or anointings or empowerings of the Spirit. That's what I think we see happening. And I think that every Christian, everyone who has faith in Jesus, can expect a continuous and increasing experience of the Spirit's power in their life. What I mean is that God does not desire for you to be stale. God does not desire stagnation for us. Right? It's not like, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, you know, when you become a Christian, you're like a cup. And when the Spirit of God comes inside you, He fills the cup to the full. And we know that since the Spirit is the sign and seal of the guarantee of our faith, that God does not take the Spirit away from us. Therefore, because you're full of the Spirit, it's not like we leak Him and need to get filled up again. I don't know if you've heard that terminology, that illustration before. I think it's wrong. The Christian faith is not some static faith that you've received the Spirit with power the moment you got converted and then you experience nothing else after that. That's not what we read in Scripture. The, the, the Christian walk is a dynamic experience of continuous and increasing filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what might that look like for us? What does it look like? Oh, before I get there, let me give you this example. Uh, a very helpful one, I believe. In my marriage and relationship with Tash, we're married. There is a, a sign that we are married in the fact that we wear rings and we're married together. We've made a covenant together. Now, we still experience seasons of closeness and separation. We still experience a greater depth of that covenant relationship. We can grow in that. We can damage that and harm that. And so I think as we think about our Christian life, we need to think about it in relational terms because this is a relationship. This is not simply a static point of conversion and that's it. There are seasons of growth. There are seasons of intimacy. There are also seasons of separation. And so what might it look like for someone to receive a secondary, subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit? And, and here are some examples of what I think it might look like. And, and it's important to also say that it doesn't have to look the same for everyone. Remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus? says the Spirit of God, his, his activity is like the wind. It blows, you see its effects, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with anyone born of the Spirit. 
we don't have to see the Spirit's activity in the exact same way for every single person. And so it can be manied and varied experiences of the Spirit. What might it look like? It might be that as you are reading the Scriptures or as you are listening to a sermon, that the Spirit of God burns in your heart as He reveals to you with fresh eyes the person of Jesus. Maybe you've seen Him in a way that you've never seen Him before. Maybe you experience Him like you've never seen Him before and your heart burns inside of you. So what happens in the end of Luke's Gospel is the disciples walk along the road to Emmaus. Maybe you have an overwhelming overwhelming experience, not just knowledge, but experience of joy and peace. Overwhelming, so much so that it transcends any sense of circumstance, that you are filled with joy and peace in Christ because of an experience of the power of the Spirit in your life. And that's um, Romans 14, 17. Maybe you are bound in hope. And maybe you are so filled with hopefulness, with certainty about your future, that you are just swimming in a deep ocean of hope. That might be an experience of the Holy Spirit. That's what's spoken of in Romans 15, 13. Or maybe it's just a tidal wave of the love of God that washes over you in a very powerful and dynamic way. Maybe it's that you have this deep, grounded confidence confidence and assurance and you experience comfort as the spirit of god according to romans 8:16 witnesses to your spirit to your soul that you indeed are a son or daughter of god that you experience a powerful sense of assurance and comfort knowing that god is your father now All of those experiences of the Spirit, I think, ought to happen. You can expect them to happen. We might call them usual or ordinary, for lack of a better word, experiences of the Holy Spirit that ought to be commonplace for us in the Christian walk. And I don't just mean that you experience something up here. I mean that you feel and experience God at work in your heart, in your life, in all of your being. But we might also say, that you could experience an unusual or extraordinary experience of the Holy Spirit. What might that look like? For some, there may be an extraordinary, powerful anointing of the Spirit. And I I use that word cautiously because I, I believe in a sense every Christian is anointed with the Spirit. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23. And a couple of times in Little John, you'll see that language used of all Christians. But For some, there is a very powerful anointing of the Spirit for mission and evangelism. Some very powerfully gifted evangelists. I think back to the ministries of John Wesley or George Whitfield, men who proclaimed Christ and saw literally hundreds of thousands of people come to faith. Those who have been involved in the great awakening and revivals of the past as the Spirit of God anointed preaching of the gospel. I think of one of my personal heroes, Stephen Lungu from African Enterprise, a very powerfully gifted evangelist in Africa today. There is this powerful anointing that is for some, not all, in an extraordinary fashion. Additionally, there may be a very powerful filling of the Spirit for some miraculous event like a healing 
or a, a divine revelation that God reveals something to you that you could not otherwise have known. It was impossible for you to know that unless God had revealed it to you. I think those are subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit that can happen that might be classified as more unusual or extraordinary. Now, it's difficult. I don't mean unusual and extraordinary in, in that they don't happen, happen frequently. I mean in nature. These are extraordinary events. Now, God decides. He is sovereign in pouring out the Spirit. He is the one who decides the frequency and timing of these things. And so I think where that leaves us is one baptism, multiple subsequent fillings of the Spirit that could look like a whole host of different things. And that list I've given you is not exhaustive. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a sec. Doesn't that create two classes of Christian? You've got these Christians who have received the Spirit and then these super Christians who have been filled with the Spirit. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. And, and maybe this is a helpful illustration that I've pulled from John Stott to explain this. If you take, for example, a child, a newborn baby, and a full-grown matured adult, as the child and the adult both breathe, you would say that they were both filled with oxygen. Their lungs are filled with air. And yet, because of the adult's process of growth and maturity, they have a far greater lung capacity and so they can experience a far greater filling of oxygen than what a newborn child could. And so I don't think this creates two classes of Christian, but as we read the Scriptures, certainly we have mature Christians and immature Christians. Those who have um, surrendered themselves completely in every corner of their life to God and those who are holding on to sin that they refuse to let And so... I think the more we know, the more we grow, the more mature we are, the greater capacity that we have to experience the fullness of the Spirit of God. Maybe that's a helpful illustration. So, what if, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep going here. What if you have received a very powerful experience of the Holy Spirit at some point after your conversion? Does this mean that your experience was illegitimate? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and let me give this illustration as a way of explaining. This is from Pastor Sam Storms, who's a part of our Acts 29 network, has written a number of helpful books on this. He says, imagine I've got a headache, and I go to the medicine cabinet, and I open the cabinet, and I take out what I believe is Panadol. I throw some water in, I pop two Panadol, and 15 minutes later, my headache is gone. I go back to the kitchen, and I realize that what I'd actually pulled out of the medicine cabinet wasn't Panadol, it was Nurofen. Now, does the fact that I haven't taken Panadol but I've taken Nurofen change the fact that my headache is gone? No, it doesn't. It just changes the label, the thing that has caused that. And so this does not invalidate your experience of the Spirit of God. I think what it changes is the label that you put on it. Because I don't think the category of baptism of the Holy Spirit is what we see happening as God fills us and we experience the Spirit of God after our conversion. And so I'm, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that your experience is illegitimate or fake. I'm saying it's real. But I'm saying we need to be careful to use the Scripture's categories to put on these things. And the reason we need to be careful is this. Because if we want to argue that those moments are a baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
and, and you want to do that well, then I think you necessarily get very close to saying that tongues should follow. And I don't think that's true. I don't think we see that pattern in the scripture, that speaking in tongues is a necessary requirement of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And additionally, I think it can run the risk of creating two classes of Christian. Right? Because this baptism of the Holy Spirit that falls with great power is this one defining moment in your life. What I think we see here is much better. Because rather than just having these maybe two powerful moments of experience of the Spirit, we can have a continuing, increasing, multiple experience of the Spirit's work in our lives with power. So this is what I believe the Scripture reveals to us. One baptism, many fillings, many multiple experiences of the Holy Spirit. What it means is this. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, unless you have received the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Spirit. Now, I think unfairly, many conservative Christians have said that the Charismatics claim that you can be a Christian without the Spirit. I've not come across that. In my reading and in my conversations with people, I've not come across a charismatic person who says you can be a Christian without the Spirit of God. They agree with Romans 8, 9 that says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And so I think it's unfair to label the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Christian, non-Christian. I don't think the Pentecostal charismatic church does that. But what we affirm is that every believer has the Spirit of God. And yet, despite the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, we've been baptized with the Spirit, we are still called to be continually and increasingly filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says this, And do not get drunk on, with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now that is a command. That's not a... You can't just go, mm, maybe not. That is a, an imperative for us. If you're a Christian, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a, what, what they call linguistically a present active. That it speaks of continual filling, increasing filling with the Holy Spirit. This is not a once-off decisive moment that you experience God and then the rest of your Christian walk is static. This is a dynamic growing, increasing experience and filling of the Spirit and His power. So where does this leave us? Whatever label you want to put on these things, whatever timing you want to give them, in the end it doesn't really matter because I think we're speaking of the same thing. As long as we qualify that you don't have to speak in tongues at the end of it, I think we're speaking of the same thing. Where does it leave us? Wherever you fall, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit's power to save you, to move you from death to life, to awaken your dead soul. You need the Holy Spirit to send you, to equip you and empower you for the mission that Jesus has called you to. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to transform you, to make you more and more like Jesus. You need the power of the Spirit in order to serve to use the gifts that God has given you for the building up of the body. And in fact, you need the power of the Spirit every single day for everything you do as a Christian. 
The Christian life is life in the Spirit. We need Him. We need Him. So for those of you who love Jesus here this morning, my question is, are you, are you walking in step with the Spirit? Or are you grieving Him? Are you seeking and pleading that He would give you the power that you need to do what He's called you to do? Maybe today you need the power of the Holy Spirit to experience victory over that sin that entangles you. Maybe today you need the power of the Holy Spirit for the mission that Jesus calls you to tomorrow morning as you go to work, as you go to uni. Maybe you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be reminded of your identity in Christ. If that's you, then our prayer team would love to pray for you this morning. During our time of response and worship and prayer, then please go up the back. They would love to pray for you that you would experience in a new way, in great power, the work of the Spirit as He points you to Jesus, as He fills you and empowers you to do what He has called you to do. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You don't worship Jesus. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a common mistake, and the mistake is that heaven is for good people. That's a lie. Heaven is not for good people. If heaven is for good people, it's empty, apart from Jesus and the Spirit and the Father. They're there. No one else is there if heaven is for good people. It's a common mistake that people make. It's the mistake that Nicodemus made, assuming that our good works, assuming that our ethnicity, assuming that because we've been born into a Christian family, assuming that because we read our Bible and pray, assuming that because we come to church, assuming that you're good enough is a mistake. What we really need is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to change that heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. If that's you, if you're here this morning and you don't worship Jesus, don't rest on your goodness. It's not good enough. Do what Peter says for the church to do. Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says this, And he said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, then that invitation that Peter offers to those people who heard the first message on that day of Pentecost is the same message for you. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from living a life that rejects God. Repent and come back to Jesus who promises that by His death on the cross, He will forgive your sins that He will pour out His Spirit on you and awaken your dead soul, that you can respond to the call of the gospel to have faith in Christ. If that's you today, then even now in your seats, why not say to Jesus, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? I repent. Because the promise that Jesus offers is that those who seek will find. Those who knock the door will be open. Those who ask will receive because the Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask.
If that's you, then our prayer team again would love to pray for you. Maybe you don't really know what to pray. They would love to pray for you so that you might receive Jesus and receive the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. Friends, we're going to respond to this God who has graciously, by the Spirit of grace, transformed us by His power. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to respond in the Lord's Supper. To my right, to my left, and halfway up the back are two stations. And those stations are bread and grape juice. They represent the body and blood of Christ. And we invite those of you who love Jesus and worship Him to come dip the bread into the juice, eat it, and rejoice that the Holy Spirit has moved you from death to life and to live in light of that freedom and to seek His power and His presence as you leave this building. So church, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to pray and we're going to respond and worship this great God now. So please join me. Let's stand. We thank you, God, that you're a God who has lavishly poured out your Spirit on us. And we know that were it not for the Spirit's powerful work in moving us from death to life, this worship that we're about to offer you is worthless. God, we thank you that you acted decisively and powerfully to regenerate us. And God, we want to come to you this, this morning and confess that we are people in desperate need of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Power for the mission that you call us to. Power to live the life that you've called us to in the likeness of Christ. And so God, we pray now, fill us with your Spirit. Fill us afresh even this morning that we might leave here empowered and filled people to live out the calling that you've given us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen.